So, I mean, you wouldn't describe yourself as a hero. No. Do you think a hero exists or you just this terminology you don't like to use? Also, typical hero response to being called a hero, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Australia has just faced a catastrophic summer of bushfires that burned through millions of hectares of land, laid waste to more than a billion animals, destroyed thousands of homes and took lives. Thomas Fogg is one of an army of selfless volunteer firefighters who puts his life on the line to defend his community. An act of service he and his fellow volunteers take tremendous pride in. I mean, when you see someone's home burning is one thing, but when you're with the person watching it burn, that's a whole new thing. Following in his father's footsteps, Thomas has been in the CFS for most of his life and has fought in many major bushfires, including the recent Cudley Creek fire, which devastated the Adelaide Hills. It's a service which can have a massive impact on the mental health of the men and women who face the flames. Fire has no emotion. Fire doesn't care. It will just change direction. So that's where, as a firefighter, as a team, you've got to be aware of what you're going into. The word hero gets thrown around a lot when describing our firefighters, but the way Thomas sees it is just what they do. Welcome to Young Blood, a podcast all about young men's health. My name's Callum McPherson, I'm a journalist, and this is our mission to talk about the stuff that matters and isn't talked about enough. Let's do it. What made you become a firefighter? CFS has always been a part of my life. Um, Dad was involved in it before I was born. So I was kind of born into it, if you want to put it like that. Um, always had, it's always been a part of my life. So growing up, always at the fire station. Um, Dad was always at trainings on Monday nights. And then obviously when I was old enough, I became a cadet. And then from cadets, you go into um, fully qualified firefighter. So that, I think that's 16. So still quite young. Was it always something that you saw growing up and aspired to? Definitely, yes. Just because growing up, being involved with it, community was always such a big thing growing up and being a part of the CFS was, it was kind of a natural course. My brother did it. So yeah, it was just something that we've always going to do regardless. So was it sort of an expectation in your family, like an unwritten expectation or? Kind of, probably unspoken of. There was, I, I moved away when I was 22. I went down to Glenelg, so obviously you can't be active in the brigade that you're at. And there was no sort of ill feeling over it. It was just, yeah, it's, you grow up and you move on, but growing up as part, being a part of it, it was just a natural course. And what did you admire about your dad and about the CFS? Well, when you're on a fire truck going to an emergency situation, there's a fair bit of, um, there's a pr sense of pride that you have doing it, knowing that you're doing the most you can for your community. Um, and obviously there are some situations you go to where the adrenaline is pretty high. So it's, it's just something that you, I don't know, you are trained to do, but you're also something that you know that you're doing the right thing for the right reasons. And so what was in your heart? Did you just have a, a strong feeling that you wanted to do something above and beyond for your community? Oh, uh, I'm not sure because it, it, if you ask that question to someone who joined the CFS when they were older, they'd probably have a much different answer because it was just always part of my life. It was just, it was nothing that, nothing out of the ordinary to go, oh, I might join the CFS today because it was just always a part of my life. So it was always sort of going to happen. And so what did that give you as a, as a kid, especially? Early years of that sense of responsibility of what you're going to do in the community, that the community is quite strong. So the sense of doing things for other people give you quite a good 
sense of self-worth as well growing up. So how did that flow into other aspects of your life when you were going through school and figuring out who you were? It didn't really because boys being boys I sort of went with the general flow anyway. It definitely gave me a, a bit of a broader view of life because you're seeing things and experiencing things that some people have no idea about. So from the age of 16, 17, you're an active firefighter. So you go into, you know, potentially major bushfires. You grow up really quickly in those situations. You go into vehicle accidents. Um, you're, you are seeing a lot of trauma, not like... With the CFS, when you aren't ready for it, then you won't ever be put into a situation that you're not ready for, for your training. And that's where the officer in charge comes into it. So they have to know what you're ready for. Yeah, well, the person who's officer in charge will know that you've been a member for six months. So if you're going to a fatal car accident or a car accident, there are known entrapments, they're not going to send the 17-year-old to go and hold the drip for the paramedic. Because they might freeze. Yeah, it's something you don't want to subject someone to. But if you're officer in charge and you ask a new member to go do traffic control, for example, they have to walk, they might have to walk past the scene of an accident, then... It's up to the discretion of the individual. Do you look at what you, if you if you're not comfortable with it, you just keep walking past that. Mm. But humans being humans, you're intrigued and you want to sort of see. But then you have to make sure that you're prepared to deal with that. And uh, that's where training comes into it. Training, training, training with the CFS. You're not allowed to go on the fire truck until you've done a certain amount of training. And even then, you have a probation. So the officer in charge knows that the person who's getting on is still in their probationary period. So you've got to think about that when you're allocating tasks. So how do you prepare someone to see something like that? Um, with trauma, it's a different one. Trauma is more making sure that the person's well-being is good after it. So take a car accident, for example. You get responded to a car accident and the message might say car versus tree. Yeah, well, conf- we're, we're conf- the same. Confirmed entrapment. We're doing the news reporting so we see the... The yeah. same alerts and then... So, for example, the last one I went to, there was only um, two of us on the truck. But when we got there, there was already someone there who was a paramedic. So that sort of scene was taken care of. But with a new member, as they join, they go into the basic firefighting course, which gives you a lot of information in quite a short amount of time. But that gives you the skills to then go and put them into practice. Then you have weekly trainings, Monday nights, We'll have different topics, different tasks, different opportunities to practice things. So with vehicle accidents, if there is a particular traumatic accident, the crew who responded to that accident at the next possible time, so it would be, say, on a Monday night training, there's actually a group of people so called the SPAM team, the Stress Prevention and Management team, and they will come and do a full debrief. So if there is a traumatic event, and even bushfires, if you know, if there's lives lost or if there's a particular um, situation that meant that someone has had a traumatic event, then we'll get debriefed on that situation afterwards. So we're definitely looked out for, but it's a volunteer organisation. So it's with the MFS, their training is daily. Their lives are their training. Where with the CFS, because it's a volunteer organisation, Every situation is going to be very different and you don't know what crew you're going to get in that. So that's when it comes into 
like the captain of a brigade, it's his discretion to see that someone who's done their training might not might not quite be ready and it's up to the officers of the station to sort of say, look, I don't think this person's quite ready with that. Let's go put them on another training course or something like that. But volunteers volunteer. At the end of the day, if you need the crew, the crew's going to respond. Mm. And how much of a commitment is it? Technically, it's 24 hour because you have a pager. So that pager could be three o'clock in the morning, five o'clock in the afternoon. But as a volunteer, you know, like for my situation, I'm working nine to five, Monday to Friday. So for those times, I'm out of the area, so I can't respond. As most are. Yeah, which is a big, it's a big issue um, for the CFS. Your daytime response hours is quite, um, quite scary sometimes. So that's when if we don't respond to a call within a certain time frame, that call instantly gets defaulted to the next station or the closest town and then so on. So you always be able to get a crew, it's just that time frame. Mm. Um, yeah, it's, it's, and then in terms of training and things like that? Training, so like I said, the yeah, entrance into it is you do a police check. So basically from day dot, you do a police check, make sure that you, your criminal history isn't too full on, um, then you will get accepted. You have to get accepted into the brigade. So the, all the other members have to be comfortable with the person because although it's volunteer, you're still going into situations that... It's life or death sometimes, you know, and I don't want to make it sound too extreme. You have to have each back, though. Sure. You have to feel comfortable with the people that you're responding mm. with, and we're quite lucky in our brigade because everyone there will be comfortable going into a situation with the next person. Mm. So from that, then once you're accepted, then the CFS say, okay, you'll become a member. They give you a member number. So from that, then you go do your basic firefighting, which is a three-day course, from start to finish, it's a pretty full-on course, but there's a lot of information in there. So operating pumps, how to work the hose, how to do lot of traffic control, all these sorts of things. From then, then you're on, I think, a six-month probation. In that time, there's still three more courses you have to do. So, But then you'll be coming to Monday night trainings every week. Um, every year, members have to have a certain number of trainings they have to do. So... Although it's still voluntary, there's still a certain level of expectation that people are going to come and train. Mm. And there's certain things that you have to do every year to be able to respond on the truck. Training is really important, as with any emergency service, any stressful situation, sort of your mind will always go to its lowest form of training. capability. Yeah. Yeah. So So whatever you've learned will get shrunk down. In levels of high stress, your brain will resort to what it sort of knows. And if what it knows is comparative to the situation you're at, generally you're fine. Obviously, sometimes you could have 30, 40 years of experience. Mm. You're still going to find situations that's just outside of it. So you need to train to try and make those basics automatic. Exactly. So you train like you fight. And that's something that as a volunteer organisation, you've got to be not reminding people, but you rock up, you come, you go through the paces, but you've got to sort of get people to really realise that the skills you're putting into practice now, you might need them and you want to know them and to that's be why first you've got nature. To take it seriously, because you don't want to find out on the fire ground that you, you don't know what you should have known. Or and familiarisation. You don't want to be having an officer scream at you because if there was a major fire here, you're amazed at how loud it is. It gets hot, it gets loud, it gets intense. So if you have an officer say, go get me this from this locker, you don't want to be running around the truck going, oh, because you should know. 
but then it does come back that it's still a volunteer organ. People are doing it out of their own free will. Mm, so, so it's not the military. They don't be tearing the people to yeah. shreds either, but it's serious. Yeah, mm. of course it is. Because once you get to that rural sense, there isn't anyone but volunteers. So without volunteers, there'll be some situations which are totally out of control, which is scary to think mm. of sometimes. And most people, certainly a lot of people out there, you know, they struggle to get up for their job that they go and get paid for and they'll complain about having to go to work and that's whatever they chose to do to make a crust. What is the magic of volunteer firefighting that inspires so many people to be selfless and go and do that for free and make that commitment? Community service. As basic as that sounds, community service. Yeah, In the society that we live in where there's a lot of that's someone else's problem. So say take trees down, for example. I've Years ago, I lost count of the amount of times that we would get responded to a tree down. So the message will say, CFS respond tree down, tree blocking road, three o'clock in the morning, pissing down with rain. So say four members rock up. So that's four South Australians that have just woken up early. If they have wives or partners, that's potentially four partners that have woken up. If they've got kids, there's four kids that have woken up. So it's starting to s snowball. I've lost count of the amount of times that we get to a tree down and one of us has got off the truck and kicked a branch off the road. I've, I, I, don't even, I wouldn't even know how many times now. On a couple of occasions, it's been confirmed that that was a triple zero call. Triple zero to me is the shit's hit the fan. Yeah. I need everyone here. If it's not one three one triple four, which is something's about to go wrong, triple zero is like last resort. So for someone to call triple zero because they've had to slightly, they, it's that community society mentality of that someone else's problem, mm. and that gets you all out of bed. Yeah, granted, but you, but sometimes yeah, because you do because it's Cause you don't it's know what it what could be. you do. Yeah, it's 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 part of our lives to do it and you've made a commitment to do it. So, and that's a big thing that we're trying to get through to a lot of new members is it's a commitment that you've made. You might be doing it for free, but it's not free to get you to where you want to be, mm. to do your BFF course, to do your rule. These cost a lot of money to put you through. So you're getting taught skills. Granted, those skills can only sort of be used in the CFS, but it's definitely something that you need to understand when you join. It's a commitment that you make, but, but then you also get calls at three o'clock in the morning for fires, car accidents. There's, there's, there isn't really anything that you don't get. We got called to a koala up a tree a few weeks ago. We go. <laughs> of course you do. That's where they're meant to be, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and we got it down and the poor thing probably just wanted to be up the tree, but the person was still there who wanted it down. So can't argue with it. So when you get those calls and it's going to be something serious, what's the feeling that you get in your chest and is that something that you that you want or just the fact that someone needs to do it and you're happy to be that person um, no it's i'm really lucky dad was on the spam team which i described to you before he was on it for years so because of his training he taught me and there's a lot of people in the cfs who have the same way of thinking about it is that mentally you have a set of drawers physical set of drawers so your home life, your home life drawer is open. CFS drawer is a very specific drawer. That's where all your training is done. So you get that call 
and you might open that drawer and you know you're going to a car accident. So if the message says known entrapments, then you're definitely only opening that CFS drawer because you're about to take from your training, every bit of your training, because there's lives at risk. If and, you get, but by opening that drawer, you're talking about preparing yourself mentally. Definitely, yeah. But you've just woken up. Mm. So, and you may not have had a call for two months. So CFS has only been a Monday night training. So you have to be time. able to snap back into it. Exactly. And that, that takes time. And from a professional or from an MFS point of view, they're snapping into it a couple of times a day. Because that's so what they become, do. Yeah. But as a volunteer, that's where you want to really commit to your training. So your pager goes off, you get up, wash your face, go to the bathroom, and you go to the station and you're still sort of half asleep. But then there's things that you have to do. By the time you leave to the station, you want to be in the heads, in the in the headspace of this is where we're going, and there are certain tasks that you have to complete before you get on the road anyway. So that sort of does wake you up. There's radio calls you got to make. There's people you got to let know of. So that gets the things firing. But yeah, if you had had a rough night's sleep, regard like anyway, it's going to be a, a long night. And then you get home at seven o'clock, and your alarm goes off at seven thirty, and then you go and work for the day. Mm. So you have some really long days. Yeah, so it's a massive commitment. And also to have that thought in your head that that pager could go off at any time as well. Yeah, that's I'm I live I, I sort of I'm aware of it. I've had it on my hip for years and years. Sometimes it vibrates and you're like what have we got now? Could be a windy, rainy day and you could pretty much go tree down. Yeah, tree down. You know what's coming. <laughs> Probably a 100 times as well. Yeah. <laughs> So what's the culture like? What sort of person does it attract and what's the, the teamwork vibe like at the CFS? The CFS attracts probably one of the broadest range of personalities of any organisation because people could do it because, you know, becoming a firefighter could be exciting. It could be that you, you could be looking for that adrenaline rush. Mm. If you're looking for the adrenaline rush, you need to stop looking for that adrenaline rush because it can get dangerous because you just need, if you if your heart's raising because of adrenaline too far, then it's you're not worrying you. about what you're doing. Yeah, yeah you're not in control. Sort yeah. Of. yeah. Um, it's a social outlet for a lot of people because it is something which... It's a club. Are, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's a club with a lot of training and a club with a lot of different people. So there's the, there isn't one type of person in the CFS which makes it really interesting, makes it, challenging as a officer in charge or as a training coordinator because there's so many different skill levels from outside you know we might get an arborist come and join but he's got to go through the cfs chainsaw training Just like you yeah. you've got to do it so no, what, are, what do you have in common though your commitment to the community of knowing that you want to go out and do something to help others you know it's yes saying you want to join the cfs to help others is like a chef saying he wants to cook like it's it's no it's what you do, but mm. it's how you go about doing it. So as a CFS member, you're not just getting on the truck and going to fires. You're not just cutting people out of cars. You're going to trees down. You're going to all the call outs, mm. but then there's also community events. You're doing barbecues. Yeah, you're, so you're living yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. And you're known in the community as a CFS member, mm. which is a big thing too. So there's pride in that. Yeah, because there's people who are at the footy clubs, people at the church, there's people at this community event, and it's when we all get together, it's it's, it's our town yep. that we're looking after. 
So it just gives you that really strong connection to whatever your town and is pride. to each yeah. other. Pride in your town because you're willing to go out and defend it, which sounds extreme, but it, it's, it's how it comes down to it in the end. Um, you know, I'm willing to go and cut that tree up because then everyone in my town can go to work or everyone from the next town can come through my town. That's essentially what it's for. You're not doing it. I might never use that road. I'm going to go clear it so everyone can use it. You know, mm. it's part of the service. And then everything means more. Definitely, yeah. You have, especially after you go to a major event, like a major bushfire, or you do go to a, a vehicle accident that can be quite traumatic. It, the next time you go out in public, you have a totally different look on things. Yeah, like a true what, appreciation. Oh, it's. Sometimes you're just looking at everyone walking around going, you guys have no idea in that sense of like, and that's how some professional emergency services people must feel in their day-to-day life is it's the general public are really, and I don't want to speak out of turn, uh, some people are so blasé as to what goes on behind the scenes that it's, some people are really lucky to sort of not have any idea, especially when you come back from a major bushfire when you've just watched someone's house burn with the person who owns the house. You know, that's an emotional situation because you're there to do a job, but you can't do your job to protect what they've just, what they're losing. So the next time you go into the public, you're sort of looking around going, man, you people have no idea what we, you know, but it doesn't give you that arrogant look on life. It gives you that appreciation on life. You know, I go home and lie down, put my head on a pillow. I'm like, gosh, I'm lucky. You know, like, look what I still have. My partner's asleep. My little boy's asleep. Um, it gives you a, a, such a broader appreciation of life. Like, look at that. Like, we've got fresh glasses of water. That is such a simple thing to us, but you go to another country, and that's trial just to get that. So it, it's that's sort of broadening your aspect and appreciation of life. And it makes you glad that you're here and you do what you do because part of the reason that those people are able to be safe is is because of you and your team. Me and the organisation. And your team, yeah. 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 You know, it's you, you still have to stay as humble as possible. Well, um, it's not you out there by yourself with a yeah, massive yeah. hose putting Definitely. it all out. <laughs> Some people do take it on as if, like, you know, look what I've done. I've just saved lives. Like, oh, you're yeah. part of the it's team. It's not a hose measuring contest. You're a team. <laughs> yeah. um, it's the team. And it doesn't matter what spot you have on the truck because there are sort of dedicated roles. So you have your driver. You've got the left-hand seat, which is the officer in charge. People on the back, they, they're your workers. But it doesn't matter who's doing what, you all still look out for each other. So that driver might get out, but go grab five bottles of water for everyone. So you drink water now, you know, and it's, it's has to be structured like that. That yeah. officer in charge is still looking out for everyone in the end, but that officer in charge might have 50 things to do right now, but you've just been watching this bloke on the end of a hose for two hours. Go and sit, yeah. sit down. Yeah, so you do have each other's back a bit like the military. Definitely, yeah. yeah. It's... You're looking at the MFS as paramilitary. Whatever the next one down is from that, that's probably CFS with how you structure it when you go out because you kid up, you're going out to a priority one job, so lights and sirens, which is lights and sirens just means it's it's a real thing that you're going to. Give us an understanding of what it's like to see a wall of fire and go towards it. It's hot. It's very loud, like undescribably loud. You and I couldn't talk to each other like this if there was a fire 20, 30 metres away. You wouldn't be able to be that close. What does it sound like? Raw. Raw, popping, cracking. Um, 
because the moisture in trees is expanding so much, that's popping. Trees explode, okay, because the sap heats up so much that it has to expand. Um, you, your adrenaline is rushing, but you're still going, what do I have to do? And at the end, put the water on the hot stuff. But that's where your situational awareness and situational awareness is one of those things that some people have it naturally. Some people have to be trained. Some people have to be reminded, but it's your situational awareness right then and there to say, okay, am I safe here to try and put this fire out? That comes back to the officer in charge because he's sending two people down on the end of a hose, yet he hasn't noticed that the wind's sort of on the change. But then that that sort of information moves up the ladder. So there should be someone at the under, end of the radio saying, say, Chunga 3-4, they know where you are. Wind is changing. Everyone on the fire ground is generally aware of that, but fire has no emotion. Fire doesn't care. It will just change direction. So that's where, as a firefighter, as a team, you've got to be aware of what you're going into. So it's hot. You've got your mask on. Fires are down. You don't notice the heat. Like It could be a 45-degree day. You won't notice the heat until you get back in the truck after eight hours and your head is pumping sometimes. And you're like, Shit, I should have been drinking more water. Yeah. That's where you remind your team, drink water, drink water, because you are so focused. Yes, that adrenaline. Yeah, it's where it gets dangerous. Stops because you. you just, you're so focused on the job at hand that you sort of lose track of time, you lose track of the heat. So it's- But biologically, that won't, it doesn't matter if you're focused or not. If it can't, gets to you too much, you yeah. can collapse or- You could be in full PPE with a rake digging out a hot burning tree on a 45, 46 degree day. You grab a shovel at home and start digging a hole, you'd be like, oh, it's too hot. Yeah. But you've got to stop that. You've got to put that fire out, get in the truck, move on. So yeah, that comes down to training. And that's where the fitness level is, fitness in the CFS is, it's expected that most people as individuals and mature adults know that what they're getting themselves into will require a certain level of fitness. Yeah, it's no joke. That's what you hope. It's sometimes forgotten a little bit about because you might not get a call out for two or three weeks, so you're like, you, you fit. Yeah, and people are living their lives and yeah. doing their other jobs, and this isn't their sole focus. So. Exactly. At the end of the day, they're still volunteers, and we still need people to respond. So you still get on the truck, but then you have to take in consideration that the people on your truck might not be able to do the same. That person might not be able to do the same amount of work as that person, but it comes down to the individual. You'd hope that people are going to take into it. Like with the MFS, it's expected and their fitness levels are encouraged and expected. But as a volunteer, you just hope that people are aware of what they're going to have to do. It could get very intense very quickly. Is there anything that you feel like um, training can't prepare you for, or not? if not you, a junior firefighter who's gone through it all, but then if say they're faced with something like Cudley Creek recently or a major bushfire? Mm-hmm. Fires are intense because they're intense because they're a fire fire is hot and loud and big the fuel the fire will be twice the height of the fuel so you get a 20 foot tree you're looking at 40 foot flames which is incredibly crazy situation and that emotional level of that your brain goes through a lot of different emotions just going to the fire because your lights and sirens everyone is kidding up putting masks on you're driving there your brain is noticing that everyone seems to be heading that way but you're driving into this situation and then it gets dark because you drive, you, you might go under the smoke and then it becomes nighttime. Yeah. 
So that emotional level, it gets pretty, it's full on. So yeah, the, what you when, would, it, when it's on, like, that's what I mean. Is it possible that you can't fully prepare for that moment, especially if you hadn't exper experienced it before, where it's, it's really on for the first time? Yeah, because that intensity is high. You can't prepare for that without experience. Then, as I was saying, you have the emotional level of a someone losing their home. Everyone that will affect everyone differently. Some people might go, "Ah, oh, it's not my home," but you're looking at that, going, "That's someone's home." And when you see someone's home burning, is one thing, but when you're with the person watching it burn, that's a whole new thing. Because you, can, I feel a little bit of guilt sometimes because you're like, "Wish I could have been here a little bit earlier." Sorry, dude, but we've got to go because there's another one. And um, but then there's the the trauma. You know, you've got the intensity of the fire, but then you might have the trauma of a car accident. You'll never, ever be able to prepare for that unless you're a paramedic. And even paramedics get shaken up by some things they see. That's where it's the support afterwards, which is really crucial. It's always been there. It's being spoken about more. Like your mental health is, like, just in general public is coming out a lot more of being focused on and a concern. But, yeah, it's every individual is different. Like, CFS, because it's volunteers, you get so many different people. You might have a nurse, or we have a member who's a retrieval doctor who's an anaesthetist by trade. So having him on the truck actually allows me to relax a little bit more because I know that I don't really have to do anything to do with the person who's trapped in the car except help him because he has been through it for 30 years. Um, but then you might have someone who's not too good with blood but then you're going to see someone trapped in the car and it's you're all going to react in different focus, ways yeah like you, and it's it's very important to, that's where that club sense that um that uh, friendship base to be able to talk about it and you have to pick up on it you go to a fatal accident which is probably you know the most traumatic thing anyone go to there is definitely going to be a debrief for every single person there like you're going if you don't go to it someone will go to your house but then if one person doesn't come to training for the next couple of months, okay, there might be an issue that we need to work on. Mm. Which, and saying it's an issue is probably the wrong way of putting it. It's not an issue, but it's definitely something that has to be noted because that could affect someone for the rest of their life. Like this person's just rocked up because they want to help and now they've been affected by it mentally. Mm. That's where that circle of closeness has to come into it so and be comfortable. You've really got an eye on each other. Yeah, um, which is hard. It's really hard because you might not see someone for three weeks just because they were working, but you don't know where they're at emotionally in life because that's where the CFS can be good because people can come to CFS and they can sort of put all their shit behind them. Mm. And, just, and then people have to be um, so accountable to sense that something's a bit off or that they took that particularly hard and actually chase them up. Yeah, and you might be chasing someone up that, has only been to work and I'm fine, but mm. you've got to sort of, and that's where chain of command is important. And that's where that paramilitary sense comes into it. There is a chain of command. There's a captain. He's the people manager. He's looking out for everyone. He organized a lot of things. Then there's your three lieutenants. So whoever is the highest lieutenant on a call, they will be officer in charge. Then you have three senior fighter fighters. So if no lieutenants rock up to an accident or to a call, sorry, with, a senior there, the senior will be in charge, and then it goes down from there. So it's up to these um, 
leadership group to make sure that you're aware. And even if there's someone that you know is struggling with something, but then they're coming to an, an event, it's sort of like you've just got to be mindful of it. So there's a real there's a real belonging in it though. Yeah. You guys become a, a family, which I suppose is a massive part of the attraction to it. But in, in that you have to be accountable for every member. Because we're doing things with each other outside of responding to emergencies. Every Monday night you're training with someone. You might go do a community barbecue with something with someone. So in that sense, you're not thinking about any emergency because you're cooking a barbecue with someone, you're having a good time and you're like, you know, I trust this person, I get along with the person. Next time you get a call with that person, like, hey mate, what's going on? Cool, let's go do this job. So it's it's that close. And then you work better as a team because Definitely. of that, all yeah. that bonding. Once you start to understand someone's personality a little bit better, it, it's a lot easier for the officer in charge to sort of delegate jobs because you're not going to go put someone at the end of a hose who you know, gosh, he was struggling a bit last week. So, no, how are you feeling? Great. Away you go then. Mm. So you've all got to be across a lot. Yeah. And speak up. That's where that trust thing comes into. Mm. Foggy, can you go do that? I'm not feeling too flash at the moment. Sweet. Yeah. If you get that headache, speak up. And that's where it comes back to being aware, but it comes to the individual. If the person doesn't say, I have a headache, I feel sick, I can't see into your head. <laughs> like yeah. you should have said something. Like, but that's where that trust. Comes they have to into feel it. comfortable to yeah. say that stuff yeah. and not think that they're going to be seen as weak to exactly. do that. Yeah. Tell us about Cuddly Creek. Um, was intense. I was there later on the Friday afternoon, so a lot had already happened. Um, we were on active standby that day, so because it was um, deemed a, class, a catastrophic fire danger day, there was an expectation that a lot of brigades will have a certain number of crew on standby, which is pretty full on to think that, yeah, there's a six or seven volunteers who have taken that day off work, or like myself, I went into work and said, I've got to go. So not only was my work having to do my work at the same time, I was getting paid for the day. So they were doing my own work, so they were dishing out a fair bit. So that's the ramifications that people don't really realise. Well, and that's realize. the same for, well, hundreds, if not thousands of other people yeah, as well. Yeah, definitely, yeah. And that's what people are thanking us as volleys. Go okay, thank all the workplaces. Go thank my partner. Because mm. I left a partner with an 11-week-old baby. I'm going to go fire fires voluntarily. It's pretty full on, like... Um, so that day we were on active standby about four o'clock. We got called to a fire just outside of Bridgewater, which was caused by the lightning strikes because a, a weather front moved through. So we went to that. When we come back, we got a call from whoever was in charge of the Cuddly Creek fire said, all right, we want to change a crew. So logistically with a fire like that, you're looking at a massive job because although the temptation is to say, let's get everyone on this. If you get everyone on this, on a catastrophic fire danger Something day, happens you've just else. left mm. 20 towns exposed. So take our area, for example, you've got Harndorf, Ichunga, Macclesfield, Meadows. So I think they sent Macclesfield and Meadows. So then it was our job to be on active standby to respond to anything in Meadows and then like Macclesfield sort of area and vice versa for Harndorf as we go. So when they come back, we swapped over. You do 12-hour shifts. So I think we got it about six o'clock um, and then you get given a tasking, which would generally be an area. So 
on the fire ground, it gets divert, like divided up into sectors. Then each, there's a group of people in each sector. Um, so we were given a certain sector or a certain road, for example, it might be a long road with multiple houses under threat. So we were able to save quite a number of houses. Some you get to and they're borderline. So that crew that we had that day was actually a really good crew. So the driver had got 30 plus years experience. Our officer in charge was the captain of our brigade with 20 years plus experience. The guy sitting next to me is an MFS firefighter. So just having him on the crew was a massive stress less because you know there isn't any situation you can come across that you can't turn to him and say, dude, like, what's going on? Because he will give his opinion, but he also gives his opinion based on the fact that he knows he's responding with CFS, which is different, and the organisations do things differently in certain scenarios. And then the two guys next to me were probably five or six years between them. So know what they're doing, want to learn myself, really experienced, really experienced, really experienced. So it was really good crew to go out with. Mm. Um, first house we come across looked as if it was defendable. By the time that we got into a situation to defend it, it wasn't defendable. So we move on to the next house. Um, and then that's the way it went throughout the night. So you And get so getting going up to a house like that, which you think is going to be defendable, and then in a matter of moments that changes, what does that look like? What do you see happen where you go, we can't do uh, Wind. Wind is the first thing you, you feel. And it's it can be quite disconcerting because the fire is creating its own wind in some scenarios. But if the wind's blowing from a certain way, you know that if that's unburnt ground or if the fire's burning towards unburnt ground and you're in that unburnt ground, you better be very cautious and very aware of what the wind's doing because being in unburnt ground is a very dangerous place. If you're standing in something that's already burnt, generally that's a safer zone. So as we got to the house, we were investigating around it Then we knew that the wind was on the change. But then you've got to, you're at the discretion of the higher ups. So there was a group lead, a group group officer there who's above the captain and he said, I don't want you to defend this, I want you to go to the next one. Mm. So although our crew may have gone, no, I reckon we can, you don't, you, you just get overruled. Yeah, catch you. And so you had some situations where you were defending homes while the people who lived there were there? Um, the, the worst one was we got responded. It's really can be very frustrating because you're getting given addresses of houses and you don't know if this information you're getting is half an hour old, yeah. 10 minutes old, two hours old because the information goes through so many different places. So we got given an address, we found the address and we're in areas that none of the crew have ever been before and we worked our way down and the house was fully engulfed. And these are on properties that's yeah. difficult to get to? can be, yeah. You'd be putting fire truck into four-wheel drive to get down to the house um, and the owner was standing there and I got out of the truck and our crew got out of the truck. We're like, hey, you going all right? And he's like, I'm fine because I'm alive. But you're watching his home. Just You can see it, it's, it's, you, you can't describe it unless you see it because you can see into someone's house, but you can see the, the, the ceiling collapsing or you can see tables and chairs burning. And that's when you make that connection to that someone's. Um, and it's that emotional disconnect that you have to train. Because for the couple of seconds, my heart sank. But then while my heart is sinking, what else am I not paying attention to? 
So you can process that later. Same with a vehicle accident. You're helping this person right now and then you can't sort of go, oh, like, oh, because you can't let your emotions come into it. You let your emotions, you worry about your emotions afterwards when you can take time to process it. And with fires, it's an emotional situation because it's an extreme situation, especially when there's loss involved. Then if there are lives lost, then that's a totally different ballgame. And so a day like Cuddly Creek where so many homes are lost and you're being confronted with that over and over and over again, you know, how tough is that? It's pretty incredible how the brain will work. And I generally... Were you able to stay fairly disconnected throughout that day until it was over? And look, I'll make it clear that everything that I say, I'm speaking from my own point of view. I'm not speaking on behalf of yeah, everyone in the CFS be because yep. everyone, even some things that I've said, people might say, oh, no, that's not true, but these are my um, opinions. But yep. on a day like that, because there is so much going on, you are going to a job, dealing with that, get on the track, go to the next job. So it's not until like that moment that I saw someone's home burning that I felt, man, Shit. Yeah, and you see tears in their eyes or well, maybe not. I was really lucky to deal with, well, not to deal with, but the person who I was speaking to, he was quite okay with the situation. He said, because I was alive. He said, I'm alive. He said, they're just possessions. What do you say? He said, I wouldn't mind my grand piano back, but I'm too old to play anyway, so whatever. It's insurance company's problem. I said, do you want a bottle of water? He said, I've got a four-rain water tank. I said, do you want a bottle of Coke? He said, I'd love one. And I gave him a bottle of Coke. And handing someone something going... That's pretty much all you have at this point in time. But he's really happy with that because it was just nice. And then the worst part, and that's where you're detaching again, but you're letting yourself, you, you can't be totally unemotional about it because then you're a robot and that's what, we're not trained to be robots. But then driving away and you still see, oh, I still see, but the silhouette of him, his outline against his house burning. But you're driving to someone else's. You got to get to the next job. Yeah, and then you switch that part off. You mm. say, no, you don't say, oh well, because that's a terrible thing to say. But you say, like, what do I have to do next, next? job? Because my job here today is to defend what I can defend mm. to stop this fire from spreading, stop the fire. And you can't be effective if you break down in the moment. No, no. But you, I'm sure it's happened before. I haven't been on a crew that someone has let go on the day. Um, Sure, it's happened before. I guarantee it's happened before. But in the CFS, or also not necessarily just in the CFS, but in a situation like that, if a crew member, even if they hurt themselves, you get off a truck incorrectly and bust your ankle, you're a wasted space. But there will be a group car somewhere. Someone will come and get you out of there. And that might take a bit of coordination and you might have to sit tight for a little while while the crew goes and does something. But... Yeah, and especially on an emotional level. If you if, if there's a crew member getting upset and crying, then it's not a matter of, oh, you'll be fine, we'll go do the next job. It's we're getting this person out. Because, A, there's a risk to affecting their mental health even more if you say harden up or don't. But there's also a risk to the rest of the crew because there's a space taken there from... There's no one watching someone's back, sort of. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, and then they could risk hurting themselves even more physically because their mind isn't there. And uh, what's the toughest thing that you remember seeing on the on the fire ground? 
either that day at Cuddly Creek or prior to that, some of the other fires you've been to? Um, or something, the kinds of things that you personally have seen and, and felt like that affected you? In general? Yeah. Uh, there's been a few, but we're lucky to have the support networks in place to deal with it. So trauma isn't nice because it's it's there might be someone upset, there might be someone screaming, there might be that person, there's that person who you're trying to assist everyone there's police there's paramedics it's, it's a buzz but then there might be family there yeah so it's all well and good to detach there's a lot of dark humor in emergency services because you've got to allow yourself to you see. don't laugh you cry sort of exactly yeah um so but then you also have to be very aware and i will speak for everyone in the emergency service you've got to be aware if there's family in earshot you keep your dark humor to yourself or quiet because you walk if you're watching your family member be removed from a vehicle but there's people laughing and joking so like how seriously are you taking this yeah. so it's also a lot harder for yourself to be uh, detached though when you see family there because that makes it very real when you see the mm. reaction of loved ones yeah and imagine yourself in a similar scenario. that's where that detachment is pretty crucial and that takes years that it's not something that you teach someone in their first weekend of being in the cfs it's it's their their emotional state as a person in general are they capable of detaching and you you can only detach so far you don't want to detach too far otherwise you become that robot again but you have to detach to a certain point that you can deal with the job at hand as it presents itself um fires are a great one you're driving into something that you know everyone is leaving from so you are slightly detached so you can talk the way you talk with the crew member but if say for example we're going to a fire and you can throw in a random friend that you know they might be like you were a bit different today it's like well that's just me going to a fire that's there you, you, you want to understand what you're getting yourself into to then be able to deal with that afterwards yeah so, but that's the the amazing thing about CFS is you might go like people going to work the next day, you know, you might go to a fatal accident at night, but then go to work and you might work in customer service, so you're talking to people all day. Yeah. So you have that mask on. Yeah. So what's the 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 struggle with that? That can't be clear cut and easy to do. You know, after the fire's out or you stopped fighting it, can you just drop it and go back to normal? I would think that. that's where the draws come into it again. Sometimes it's comes down to the individual at their own recognition and with any any sort of emotional level, it's about recognising the signs and symptoms that you're not dealing with them. So in the draw situation, there might be a couple of drawers open, but you have to recognise that there's a couple of drawers open and you have to go through the steps of dealing with that. So... Once again, the spam team comes into it. There's, there's a phone number past, posted up around the station that you can call if you're struggling. I get along really well with a lot of people in my brigade, so I can call them. I'm super lucky to have Dad because Dad's been dealing with it for more than 30 years and dealing with the debriefing side of things, so you've got that emotional level. Um, but then you also have to say, it's for me, it's all good to be upset about something. Being upset about something is perfectly natural but you need to put into place the steps to come out of it. So what Dad used to say, which is a bit, some people might think it's a bit brutal, 
you've got 24 hours to cry about it, then you get on with it. So what that is sort of saying is it's fine to be upset, but then life has to go on. And whether that means you go and seek help to allow life to go on or you go sit in the gym, go for a surf, do whatever you can, but you've got to continue with it. And yeah, with a volunteer organisation, it's really important that people are aware that they do have that support in place. And so have you found that that's sort of how you've approached it with that 24 hours and then thinking about what the next step is? Yeah, and it's I'm lucky to have what Dad, like his knowledge, um, but it's also you just have to be aware of how you're feeling um, and that's where being honest with your partner is or being honest with work and say, or being with CFS. It's like, I'm feeling like shit today, guys. Yeah. I'm not really dealing with this very well. Sweet, come and have a chat. And I guess the more open people can be and more comfortable they are sharing those things, the stronger you are too because if yeah. you're all willing to share that and you're not putting on a mask and pretending that you're invincible, yeah. then it's actually real and raw and you can help each other and, exactly. and recover and move on. It's very difficult though to to get members to that stage in the yeah. CFS. And I, I don't mean to compare us to the MFS all the time, but these people are responding with each other every day. They are brothers and sisters. Like there are, MFS, there are two firefighters who know each other better than they know their own family. And therefore more comfortable to share exactly. that stuff. Yeah. yeah, and it's expected that they will seek help if needed. Where in the CFS, you've got to be so much more aware that the people, they only come to training on a Monday night. They go to a traumatic event. Yeah. You've got to be aware of following up like we said before you've got to sort of this person hasn't come back after they went to that fire yeah give them a call and you have to really care to do that because these people are potentially they're shy they don't know you particularly well not necessarily going to be used to then just putting it all on the table and saying hey that was really hard for me to see this can be some people's only social outlet yeah so not a socially awkward people, but it does verge on that sometimes. Like some people are, this is their only thing they do, they socialise. Mm. So you want to make sure that they're pretty comfortable in your brigade because if there's any animosity, if they feel uncomfortable at all, A, they won't come back, or B, if they do go to a traumatic event, they're not speaking about it. So then you've potentially ruined someone's life and it's no fault of anyone in the CFS, but you just got to be aware of it, of you attracting everyone. And I guess not... Putting that work in, you could get in a situation where someone's out in the fire ground and they can't help and be effective because they've got these issues that are stopping them yeah. to react. They might have just come from a certain situation in their day-to-day -day life that hasn't prepared them for the situation they're about to get in. Then you might have someone, an officer in charge, who doesn't know the person that well because it might, you know, no lieutenants might be able to come to that call. So it might be a senior who's never actually worked with this person before. That's where it's kind of it comes back to being a volunteer organisation because whoever can respond at the time, if you've done the training, then that's who you've got. Sometimes you go with a crew of, might be two people who have just finished their probation and a driver. That's the crew you've got. And it's up to, up to the discretion of the person to call um, MFS headquarters and say, we don't have enough crew to respond, let's default to the next station. Or to say, are you guys ready? Let's do it and then be prepared for it. So generally with fires, there will be other stations coming regardless. So during fire ban season, you'll get generally an automatic response of multiple stations. So even if you do rock up and there's two newbies there, you can know that there's going to be someone else coming. Or you can get on the radio to the group officer and say, I need a few more people here. 
So you're always supported. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's up to the discretion. That's where training comes in. What has been the impact on your own mental health? Like at the end of a particularly long day, like at Cuddly Creek, where you've been sort of disconnected to a certain extent and too busy focusing and trying to save people all day and then that finishes, uh, what's it like to sit there and reflect on what's happened? Um, because of what you're doing creates so much pride in an individual, the jobs that we do are so different. Like you can't compare, like comparing a car accident to a fire is like apples and bananas. Like they're just, they're totally different ball games. So what you're getting from a fire is exhaustion. You're flat out, you know, it's, it's a huge day, a 12 hour shift of just hard work. Yeah, like physically you're really yeah. affected. Yeah. But it's sad and it can be emotional when you see loss. But when you come back, you're like, man, I just, I just did a lot for my community. So that pride, um, that altruistic ego comes in. It sort of like, balances it. Yeah, out. yeah, definitely. Because you feel really good about what you've just done. So, you know, I know sometimes, and a lot of people who have experienced depression have said to me that if they go and do something good for someone else, it really helps them how they feel and their own mental state, and that can be a major factor for volunteering. You're going out and doing good for others, so it makes you feel good about yourself. And it's that isn't that can't that's, be bought. Yeah, that's not selfish in any way because mm. you're going and putting your life on the line in some situations. But you know, cutting up trees might be laborious, but you know you've done the right thing for yeah. someone. It might give you a tide. It might shit your missus to tears because you've just woken up to go cut a tree up, and she's got to go to work as well. <laughs> but you know that you've done the right thing. Yeah. So and someone's got to do it. Yeah, there's an emotional twist to a lot of things. Like there's the sadness of loss, but then there's the pride of what you've done. You take a vehicle accident, there's the emotion because someone may have just got really badly hurt. You know that you've still done something to help them, but that takes a little bit more to process. And that's where we're supported. We're supported by other services. So we're supported by paramedics. We're supported by the police. That's that's all in. Same with fires, but fires, it's it, the firefighters there to put the fire out. Um but yeah, we are supported in most things that we do. Mm. And it's been such a bad fire season for the country. What's What have you thought about seeing so much of the country on fire for so long? When you see other states in a similar situation, you know, like um, New South Wales and what they went through, do you have an emotional reaction to that as well? Or what do you think? Um, speaking from my own point of view, it's going to happen. Yeah. It, it's... We live in a country where fire is actually needed. Like there are some plants which can't germinate unless there's a fire. But the way that humans have designed and built our cities encroach into scrubland. So there's a fire in that scrubland, humans are in the way. Because humans have built in encroaching and integrated with bush and scrub, to try and do an active burn off, you're going to cause some issues. It becomes really difficult. When Captain Cook first came to Australia, it was noted in his journal that he was amazed at how clean and clear the scrubland was because Aboriginal people used to burn regularly. They used to burn to clear out all the undergrowth and to flush out animals for food. So it was a win-win. But now the fuel level gets so high because trees shed their bark, they drop their leaves, 
that doesn't get cleaned up, that fuel level builds and builds and builds and builds. So if you have two towns, you know, like we've just experienced with Cuddly Creek, and that area isn't clear in between them, if a fire starts in one town and the wind's blowing to the next town, gosh, it's hard to stop, as we all just witnessed. And that's where it comes back to the individual homeowner taking an active responsibility in keeping their properties clear, in, in thinking of their bushfire plans. Don't think about leaving until you've seen the smoke. That's the wrong way of looking at it. Think about planning and preparing. But with the country as a whole, it's like it comes back to the climate change issue. I don't believe, and I say I don't believe that climate change caused the fires, but I definitely believe they're a contributing factor as why they lasted so long. We are heating up the earth and it's creating a drier state. But then there are some situations where a drier atmosphere will then create, say, more snow because the atmosphere can hold more water. So there's a good argument for why it's not. But, yeah, it, it comes down to how we actively go out of our way to clear the land. You get rid of that fuel and you've just really minimised the problem. So, yeah, it, it, I mean, look at Ash Wednesday. Look at in the 80s, that decimated huge amounts of land but it was it was caused by things that are out of our control. Like, but you have ten people who go out and light fires. That's got nothing to do with climate change. You have a lightning strike. That's got nothing to do with climate change. Yeah, it's going to happen anyway. Yeah, lightning starts fires. Yeah. It's how we go about preparing for those situations. And yes, I will probably don't want to speak out of turn, but then it does go up the chain where the funding is going how people are dealing with dealing with these situations. Like um, a lot of the backburning in our state is done by Department of Environment and Water who do a really good job of actively saying we need to burn this land off. But then people have a problem with backburning because they think it's because some people think it's dangerous or the weather might be wrong on three consecutive days that they've had lined up, mm. then you've missed your chance to backburn because the conditions have to be perfect to backburn. Then if you miss that, it's going to have a consequence potentially. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But you're burning off, and or hazard reduction burn, as they'd call it, near where people are living. That's huge. That's a huge risk. You know, you're going to actively go and start a fire and hope that you have the resources. But that's where it comes down into the government saying, all right, this is what we need to do. What services do we have to get it? The CFS, the SES, the police. Can we shut down these roads? Can we burn that? But it's huge. You know, you try and shut down Green Hill Road for the afternoon to burn off the side of that. It's a lot of people that, you know, that's going to affect. But a lot of people see that oh, I have to drive half an hour out my way. But yeah. what are we trying to do at the same time? Like it's going to be a lot more valuable to put you out for half a day than the place turned to shit. What's, what has this shown you about humanity, especially recently? Um, you know, the people that this has affected other volunteers across the country, the people that you have helped to um, save in those fires. What have you seen come from humanity that's been positive? Awareness. People's, well, awareness, uh, people are starting to really realise the impact that they can have as individuals on the, on the broader um, spectrum. Um, but generally from those people who are in, bushfire risk areas it's that community sense 
right? So you can go get a sandwich made for you by someone who'll say, thank you so much, you're such a hero. And it's sort of like, that bothers me a little bit because no, I'm not the hero, you're the hero. Like you're coming out of your way to come and do this. But then I think, oh, so am I. But that's where the community, like we are all in this together. It's not what can that person do for me? It's sort of what can I do for that person who's then going to do something for me? It's, 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 we're all in this together. So to have the attitude of that someone else's problem, that will come back to affect them for the amount of impact that they've had on their society or community too. So social media is fantastic. Without social media, we wouldn't have that awareness because, you know, like there's a lot of concern and people are wanting to donate and, you know, it's some Facebook pages which are good to a certain point, but then they become a health hazard in the end because people are using that as their sole source of information mm. and you shouldn't do that because you don't know who's posting that information up, how credible it is, how old it is, where they got their information from. So, But for that society-level thing, it's, it's people are becoming a lot more aware and people are starting to appreciate community. And, but having said that, I think it's always been like that. It's just now that everything is there at your fingertips. You can push a button and then you can see everything that's happening everyone's so much more aware of it so there would have been the same groups of people helping out after the ash wednesday fires in the 80s but you would have read about it in the newspaper if you bought the newspaper so the awareness is definitely picking up a lot Um, we have after every major event we have an influx of new members especially after fires people like you know i want to get in there i want to help those people do get tested as it comes into the winter months when you're cutting those trees up at 12 in the morning. You'll see how much you want to be a part of your community, but some of the people do stick and then they become really valuable. But it's taken an event like that for the person to say, you know what, like, I think I can do more for my community. I may have just moved to this town. Um, I may have just moved here. I've only sort of known a couple of people, but oh, I see this, the fire stations open on a Monday night and literally just drive in. Six months later, they're responding on a fire truck. Mm. So it's a it, part of the family. Yeah. Yeah. It's good. There's so many thousands of you guys volunteering across the whole country. How important is it to be aware of that mental health side of it and having each other's back and making sure that lots of these people who are facing these sorts of scenarios for the first time, especially when they're going to probably be ongoing and increasing in the coming years, that we make that the mental side of it for volunteer firefighters you know, normalise that and dealing with that so that people aren't just left to their own devices as well? Well, mental health issues have become more and more, like people are more aware of them. So there's a lot more support out there in general. But that's where, because you have such a mix of personalities in the CFS, you might get someone who's been in it for X amount of years and might be able to see whatever they want or whatever they have to and be like, whatever, they just shut it off. And go about their daily life yeah but then you get some people who aren't necessarily as um the, i'm not sure they're right not able to switch it well, off like and emotionally I don't know, tough is probably the wrong word to put but yeah they're not in touch with their emotions as much as they probably should be and then they do come across a situation that they can't deal with but definitely a lot more aware like there are even and i've noticed people who i never thought would ask for help, have asked for help because maybe after 30 years they're like, you know what, maybe I should just ask for help. I feel heaps better. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah and what gets them to that stage? Is it seeing other people do it as yeah. well? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, 
being not not so much in your face, but seeing around the station that the spam team are there, um, hearing of other people. We do. There's actually mental health training you can do now. You can go do a course in it on not so much your own, but how to look out for others. And the CFS do that as a course. So you can go do a weekend on the signs and symptoms to look out in other people that you're responding with. Yeah. So making it part of your responsibility to handle that side of things as well. Making it a part of the um, your CFS journey, like making it part of being in the CFS is mental health awareness, not just oh, that bloke over there is upset because we went to a nasty job. It's yeah, like, well, he's soft or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And yeah. I think that is pretty broad. Like that's the tough guy thing is starting to diminish a lot. It's still out there because, you know, everyone wants to be tougher. Than there's they still bravado that in that. In testosterone. you're still going to do something extreme. Yeah. You know, there's that the typical macho side to it possibly as well. Yeah. But shifting that attitude to see that that's actually not, useful and it's not actually tough to not talk about it's useful in the sense of getting in there and getting stuff done yeah because you want to go in there and get some because you want to not everyone wants to go and take a a hose that big and go run towards massive amounts of fire it takes a certain level of bravado voluntarily yeah i think the general public is like wow yeah and that's why you called heroes how do you feel when I you get called a hero? Don't ever you want seem to be like a, a hero. You seem like it. a very humble guy. No, it's not. It's I'm doing it for community service. Mm. That's what heroes do. I'm so afraid to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, yeah, I didn't do it to for people to pat me on the back. I didn't do it for people to say, you know, for be put in the limelight about it. I no. did it because I wanted to. Yeah, um, because it's the right thing to do. You walk past someone who slips over, you help them up. You don't do it so they go, thank you, you're so good. It's like you do it because it's the right fucking thing to do. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, when it comes to that bravado thing, it's useful in some sense. It's a hindrance in other senses and it can cause people grief because they I don't have to do with that. And then all of a sudden they see a situation that cracks them and all those things that they've been pushing out come out and yeah. then they... They can't respond. And I guess if it's an ego thing that you're someone who doesn't show emotion or isn't affected by anything and then you are, you're all the, all the more reluctant to actually seek help because you've got this identity built up in your own mind yeah. that you're some tough We're guy or girl that doesn't deal with it. Very, very lucky, Eddie Chunga, because there isn't much or there isn't any ego-driven firefighters, like male or female. There isn't anyone who's in there for the, for the limelight or because they think it's glamorous. There are some some stations that do they love it like they that CFS is everything you know they've got the GoPros on the helmets they they just they think they're the shit but mm. realistically sometimes they can be doing that for the wrong reasons then they're still incredibly good firefighters but yeah we're really lucky at each other because there isn't any egotistical people there they're all just community-minded people, but there's you line up a whole brigade, gosh, there is a broad spectrum of people. Yeah. That's what's cool about it. So, I mean, you wouldn't describe yourself as a hero. No. Any, <laughs> any of your teammates or anyone that you've seen? No. 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 Do you think a hero exists or are you just this terminology you don't like to use? 
also typical hero response to being called a hero, by the way. Look at your um, hero medal award ceremony where the guy getting the medal will go and give it to someone who, like the child that was brave. You know, you deserve it more than me. So a firefighter walks into a house and pulls someone out, but then there might be a child there who's had to deal with that whole situation who has done a really good job. You're the one that deserves the recognition. This person's doing it because that's what they're trained to do. I don't go fight fires to be a hero. I go fight fires because that's the right thing to do. That's what I do. Like, it's it's not my job, but I'm a volunteer, and being part of a volunteer is going out and serving your community. Now, saying serving your community, there are a lot of people out there that hear the word serve and think servant, but it's not. You serve your house. You clean your house. You keep that how you want it. So you serve You serve your home. You serve your community. I serve my community. Um, the hero thing, that's when your ego comes into it. Pedestal shit. Just no. I don't want the camera. You, n- no one in our brigade or I don't reckon anyone in our group wants that hero status because we're doing it because it's I've said it 20 times already it's just the right thing to do you're doing it because you want to do it um that's so it's the service. right yeah yeah it's community service like you're doing that job that some other people don't want to do or can't do but there are the, the people who can't do this particular job might be in another club or another organization doing something for the township yeah and then there's some people who go about their life not doing anything, but they're quite comfortable with that. So I'll never judge them if someone says, oh, I couldn't volunteer. It's like, I don't have the time. It's like, oh, fair enough. It's, like, it's all right, I do. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Make the time. It's, but, and I'll go back to when, you know, it's an appreciation of the broader spectrum. Like my partner, for example, you, people need to realise that it's not just this person going out and doing this job. There's a there's a home the that they're leaving. The whole circle around. Yeah, them. there's employment that you. It's the whole organ. There's a whole circle around that. So they um, have to make a sacrifice <clears throat> and be brave as well. Yeah, and it's taken me, like some con- or it's taken my partner some conversations with me to sort of say like, I need my bit too. So my partner's a business owner, and there are some really busy days of the year that. If she gets woken up in the night before that, that's going to stuff up that day. If that stuffs up that day, that stuffs up her business, then that stuffs up our life. Yes, there's potentially. Rep- there's repercussions. So my page is off that night. Uh-huh. And for someone who's been in it for their whole life, it's not hard to turn the page off, but you're like, bet if I turn that off, something's going to happen. But there's other crew out there. But then that's when it's also, I'm volunteering. Yeah. I'm not bringing anything back to my home that's going to aid us financially. So it's sort of what takes precedence here. And if it's only a couple, that's all she asks is a couple of days a year to say, to say, I need to focus. So that's where, as a volunteer, you need to look at it. It's not just about me and me wanting to go out there and get some. It's my partner's got to go out there and do what she needs to do as well. What's firefighting made you into? Me. <laughs> it hasn't turned me into anyone else but the person who I am. Um, Do you think that it's pivotal to who you are though? Yeah, definitely. It's definitely allowed me to have not only an appreciation for people's situations and physical and emotional situations, but also made me look at things like when I'm driving my car, 
I know that behind my seat, I've got a trauma first aid kit in there that if I come across an accident, I'm happy, willing, and trained to a certain level to be able to go do everything I can for that person. But my best mates wouldn't know the first thing to do with the Band-Aid. But that's because that's the person I, that's the person that's turned me into situational awareness, looking at the world around me, getting your head out of your iPhone and saying, what's happening? Walking down the street, is that person okay? Is there something? It's that situational awareness. And yes, every individual volunteer is different, but that's just the way that I am. And that did come from upbringing. Um, being, I mean, we used to go camping a lot. I still go camping a lot now. So an appreciation for, excuse me, the world around us and what's happening um, and the universe. So, you know, like predicting situations as they're happening, whether it be in a violent sense through like martial arts training or through a um, an emergency sense. So you're looking at someone not braking as they're heading to the back of that car and you're like, uh, but you're aware of this sort of stuff and that's who that's turned me into, just being a bit more aware of the world around you. And appreciation when I lie in bed at night, look at what I have, a pillow, glass of water, gosh, they're nice things to have. Some people don't have that after one day. Some people had everything. Some people had more than me, physical things, and they lost it, everything. So just be thankful for what you have, definitely. Sometimes you forget about it and you get reminded. Like two months ago at Cuddly Creek, you get a little bit complacent and then all of a sudden you're going, shit, I've got life really good. And that's where the emotional sense comes into it because... You take one person who suffers with depression and anxiety and another person who has uh, the same symptoms, but if this person goes out and does what they can and goes to a fire like that, your depression sort of goes, I've got it pretty good. So it helps just like a coping mechanism. It's a fairly extreme coping mechanism, but it's definitely helped. Definitely. So helping someone else. Definitely, yeah, that you are going out and... You're not intentionally going to try, I'm going to go and save a life today. It's like I'm going to do what I can to make sure that that person's life is as best as possible by defending their house. The person might not even be there. They won't be there. Hopefully they're not there because if the fire's at that point, you hope that unless the, like, I'll detract. When we say defend your home, if I was going to stay and defend my home, I would want as a minimum pretty much the clothing that I'm going to respond on a fire truck with, firefighting pump and correct water and food and supplies, not a garden hose, thongs and footy shorts, as we've seen, because <laughs> the fire doesn't, fire's not going to go, oh, I might leave that home, it's coming. If it's coming, it's nothing you can do about it. So, yeah, if that person isn't home, then you're going to defend this person's home and you're doing that as if it was your own. So... And then that's also a strange situation when you are at someone else's property and you see their things. And it's quite eerie to go into someone's house because you, you go in and you're looking for smoke in the ceiling. Has there been an ember come in the roof space? So you're feeling the, the walls. Um, but you're in there and you might see a half-drunk cup of coffee. And that's when you that detachment starts to sort of... Because you're like... I'm in someone's home, like this is their home and this is what they could have potentially lost. So this person can come back to this 
and that's the important part. And then when you get back on the truck, you go to the next house. You haven't forgotten about it, but you're moving on to the next house, but you know that you've just done the best you can. And if that person can come back to their home, gosh, it makes you appreciate your own home. Definitely. Thank you, man. Cheers, bro. It's been a pleasure. If you got something out of this episode, please leave a comment and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us grow the show so we can keep bringing you the content that matters. If you want to stay up to date with what we're doing and get involved, get onto the Youngblood Podcast community Facebook group and follow Youngblood Podcast on Instagram. And if you're keen to get in touch with me, email youngbloodpodcast, all one word, at hotmail.com. This podcast was produced by the talented Rory Noak at Podbooth. You can check them out at podbooth.com.au. This is Youngblood. Thanks for joining us. Catch you next time.